Hello, you are listening to the Plumfield Moms, and this is Plumfield in Person. Hi, I'm Diane Pendergraft. I'm here with Sarah Masaryk, and we have with us today Christy Stansfield, one of our library ladies, Jill Morgan from Purple House Press, and Tanya Arnold of BiblioGuides. Ladies, thank you so very much for joining us today for our first official Landmark Book Club discussion. And we are starting today with the book that launched all the books. Welcome to the discussion of the mysterious voyage of Captain Kidd. Ladies, thank you so much for being here today. This is a fun project. I knew very little about Landmark Books when I began homeschooling. I would have given my right arm for a book club like this so that I could listen in on some of these books and understand what they were, why I might want them, how I could use them, and how people are going to talk about them. For example, is Captain Kidd really worth $600 as a unicorn? What do you think? I wouldn't pay that much for it. (laughs) That's all I can say. (laughs) But it is, in fact, a great book, and it's a great way for us to start. How did you first hear about Captain Kidd? I guess I first heard about it when I found out how expensive it was in, (laughs) you know, collecting my landmark. Yeah, I I just looked at that and said, well, I'll just never read that one, I guess. (laughs) Did you ever find one in the wild, Christy? Never. Never. Tanya, what about you? Yeah, it started looking for landmarks in around 2017, and I had a friend who had been paying attention to the series more closely than I was. And she messaged me and she said, there are quite a few Captain Kids on Amazon for 20 dollars or under $20. And <laughs> at that time, I hadn't paid more than around 6 or $7 for a landmark. And so I thought I was really splurging to buy one for about 12 and it was in acceptable condition. It's in horrid condition. And then they were gone. And I now kick myself that I didn't pay the 20 for a higher quality copy. Right. There were a lot that were in very good condition. There were quite a few. Um, and then after that, it just skyrocketed up in price. And it's just incredibly rare. So I do have an original copy of it. It's nowhere near as nice to read as the Purple House Press one is. And you would ask the question, right. is it worth $600? If I really loved ABC Whipple and I was collecting his works, I think he's a really interesting person and did some really incredible things in his lifetime. Maybe. Mm-hmm. If I just wanted it for my homeschool, for the story, I mean, absolutely, that feels astronomical. So I'm really glad that it's back because I hadn't read it and I love it and I am prepared to fight to the death about how much I love it. I'm going to bring pirate terms. <laughs> So there you have it. <laughs> Wimple is pretty persuasive, isn't he? He mm-hmm. convinced me that Captain Kidd is innocent. A hundred percent. I'm yeah. I have so many things to say about what I feel about Captain Kidd. Yeah. I don't think you're gonna be fighting me at all. Oh <laughs> I just I wasn't sure if some people were gonna be like, eh, it's okay. And I was prepared to convince you as to the greatness of this particular story. <laughs> Okay, well, I'll let you just so that you get a chance to do that. But I I do have a question for whoever. As I was doing some research before and after I read it, I find nothing else on the internet that says he's innocent. Why is this the only place? And um, if this new research is true, why has no one else picked it up and gone with that? I think people like the story of a pirate... I think they romanticize the whole thing. They want to go out there and look for Captain Kidd's treasure. Ah. Well, he could still have treasure without being a pirate. I mean, you know, he could have been innocent, but still buried his treasure. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I haven't gone and researched, so I'm prepared to fight to the death based on the fact that I've only read one book about him. <laughs> no. So, <laughs> um, But I think it also is complex. Because there is a difficulty in the descriptors between a pirate and a privateer. 
Yes. And did he do pirating activities? Yes. But in what sense and in what way and under what conditions? Was he a pirate in the sense that he was an unethical person who lacked integrity? Or what were the circumstances of it? And to me, the circumstances was that he was a pawn in a game that was much bigger than him, with much more powerful people, where money was at play, and they were willing to throw him under the bus to save their own necks. Absolutely. Oh, oh yeah. For and sure. does that sound familiar? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> it still happens now. All the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All the time. This is very human. It's so human. And my heart just went out to him for the position that he was in. He didn't even want to be doing it. Opinions. <laughs> that said, we do really want to talk about the fact that this was a huge unicorn. It was the most prized unicorn of the entire Landmark series. Practically impossible to find if you don't know what a unicorn is. It means it's a book that you really doubt its existence because it's so hard to find. And people were paying upwards of $600 for a copy of this book. But now you don't have to. Because the second part of our conversation is going to talk about the fact that Jill found a copy for a ridiculous price. We'll let her tell you that story. And figured that that was the sign she needed to reprint this book. And this is the first landmark book that Purple House Press has brought back. Hopefully to be the first of many. She also has Medical Corps Heroes and Combat Nurses of World War II. Tanya and I are particularly rooting that we can convince her to contact the Blasting Game Estate and uh, get also the Frogmen, because we're really loving Blasting Game. (laughs) But so the second part of our conversation today, we're going to talk about the details of the reprint of this book, because Jill did more than just save it from being a unicorn. She actually put a lot of little touches in this book to enhance the reader's experience. So Tanya, when you were reading... You didn't even want to read your unicorn copy. You wanted to read the new copy, right? Yeah, I did. Mine is very beat up. It's not in good condition. It's not a lovely experience to hold it or read it. And once I knew that Jill was reprinting it, I was just waiting for her copy to come out and to read it. That's awesome. You know, the reason why we're doing this series, and we're going to have, as long as God allows us, we're going to have on the first Friday of every month a Landmark Books book club discussion. For many of us, this is the opportunity, the invitation we needed to go and read the books that are sitting on our shelves that we bought for our kids and maybe haven't made time for, or in Christy's case, bought for her library. So we're so glad you're joining us for the ride. Go ahead, make a cup of tea, settle in. And listen to us fight. (laughs) (laughs) So the question I have is, if ABC Whipple is the only one we know who's advocating for kids' innocence, why was he the one who was contracted to write this book? Does anybody know? I do not know. So I'm asking if anybody knows. Well, I don't know specifically why he was contracted. But I do know a little bit about his history, and he was a wartime correspondent during World War II. He was a historian, and he liked maritime stories, so he actually researched and wrote quite a few maritime stories. So I imagine this was a story that captured his imagination, which comes through in the storytelling for sure. For sure. I mean, this reads like an adventure novel. Mm -hmm. There is no dry history here at all. And I think maybe Jill said this too. But you know the outcome, and I still felt like clammy hands and anxiety on his behalf through the story. Yes. I just wanted to add that there's only one line of dialogue in this Mm -hmm. book, and still it kept my attention. It was not a dry history book. It's fascinating because you're right. There's no dialogue in this book. It is just narrative, and Mm -hmm. it is really compelling, fast-paced stuff. It is going to be a book that boys like for that reason, yes. But at the same time, you know, you have, oh, he was probably a pirate, and they're going to sea, and they're going halfway around the world, and then he gets out there, and nothing happens. (laughs) Forever. (laughs) They never find any pirates. Yeah, they can't (laughs) find anybody to steal from, no French people to take stuff from. (laughs) That is like the worst luck ever, because... 
I have always noticed when I read stories about the sea back then that it's like, what is this, the highway? You can't go anywhere without all of a sudden there's a pirate ship on the horizon. And then he gets into this story and he's gone for two years and never sees another ship. I don't know how you do that. (laughs) I really wondered if somehow the pirates knew that he had been commissioned, if there had been a faster schooner that had warned them, because it seemed like they were really adept at hiding from him. They were just never there. And he went to all the places where they were supposed to be. And then the only time he can find them is when they are overtaking him because he's at his most fragile state. And it also appeared that he was finding people he wasn't supposed to find. Yes. And that's what got him in trouble. Right. <laughs> and and people who, like just like he had French flag so he could run up the colors, they all had, they were all working under multiple banners at the same time. So wait, which ship is it? Oh, let's pull out those papers. Well, and I kept thinking, the ocean is a really big place. How how are you all running into each other? I I mean, I I get there's routes, right? So everybody's on the routes. But still, the ocean is really, really big. So it was just, that was fascinating. I want to kind of go back for just a second, though, because we were talking about what a great narrative it is. And there's the only, the one line of dialogue. And I was thinking... I don't know if we're talking about spoilers, but in case any audience members are worried about that, Whipple already just tells you the end at the beginning. So this is a story where you find out chapter one, page two, you find out the finale at the beginning. And this has got to be one of the greatest openings for a children's nonfiction book ever written. Do you guys think? Mm -hmm. I thought it was brilliant. Page three in Jill's copy, which is the very, is chapter one. It gives, you know, a couple paragraphs. And then it says, they say that a man's whole life passes before his eyes when he knows he is going to die. And then a little bit further, how Captain William Kidd must have wondered, could all this have happened to him in only six years? This book is about how it happened. (laughs) And I just think, well, I mean, to me, that's like laying down the gauntlet. I'm, yeah. I, I'm, there's a ride here and this man's life is now hanging in the balance and he's at the gallows and I'm going to tell you exactly how we got here. And then he takes you on this wild ride, which makes you question anything that you might've thought you knew about Captain Kidd. And mm. I think it's brilliantly executed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is brilliant. So right before the line you quoted, Tanya, The voice of the chief judge was already pronouncing sentence. There you will be hanged by your neck until dead. And the Lord have mercy on your soul. It starts with this completely grim death knell. How can you not be like, okay, if we're starting with his death sentence, something has got to be exciting inside this book. That is quite the way to start a book. And I think for boys... It's the perfect hook. Like, wait, what? Yeah, truly. I mean, I think it just starts a great epic. And then Mm -hmm. that's what it is. So we know Tanya loved the book. We know Jill loved it because she printed it. And she does. And in many times we've talked with Jill, we have referenced this book where she says, even every time she read it in her working with it, Every time she was still waiting at the end, maybe this time he won't be hanged. (laughs) Just like Joan of Arc, I kept wishing for a different ending. Yes. (laughs) So, Christy, what did you think? I'm a fan of naval fiction anyway. Yes. And uh, honestly, I thought he was a pirate. I don't know. Um, (laughs) Until you said you were going to do this book club. Of course, I did buy it because Jill printed it and I wanted it for the library. And I thought this is great opportunity that people would have to read it. But then I thought, okay, well, I ought to read it then. And it got me from the first sentence, which is the dialogue, right? Right. William Kidd, hold up thy hand. Right. (laughs) And then, you know, it goes on to describe this poor guy. And I was like, okay, well, how did that happen? I love maps. Mm. Nice map in the center of the book so you can see where he's going and encountering nobody. Right. <laughs> um, I I just 
felt this growing frustration. I think Whipple brought that out. Yes. As, as you go on through the book, you're feeling that frustration too. It's like, I try really hard. I felt like he was a good man trying hard yes. to do a job and he just couldn't get there. Yes. No pirates, people that he wasn't supposed to meet, he did meet. They turned on him, even though he didn't do anything bad. I mean, it just is one of those really frustrating stories. But you had to keep going to the end to figure out how he, why, why he didn't get away with it. <laughs> when so many pirates did, and I'm not saying he's a yes. pirate. I don't, I don't think he was a pirate. I, I, I kind of think he's kind of incompetent. <laughs> he drove me crazy. <laughs> I wish y'all could see Tanya's face right now. <laughs> incompetent. I yeah. How do you not run into a pirate for three years? <laughs> I mean, fate? it starts with ladies. Fate. <laughs> well, here I'm coming to the rescue. Thank you, Kristen. I think he was a victim. I mean, he he wasn't competent to be a pirate. Okay. <laughs> if you want to go competent, he was an incompetent pirate. If he was, right? But I think he was. A, a very competent and successful businessman, right? Yes, yes. Okay, yeah, and honorable. A, what, there, there's like a line in something somewhere. If I can remember what it was, but he was a great businessman, but a very poor pirate. Maybe it was in the Fiddler on the Roof. Do you know where I'm going with this? Or something? There's something that reminds me so much of great guy, really bad pirate. <laughs> he was a great guy i think whipple writes him to have such high integrity and a sense of duty and wanting to do the right thing and hating the circumstances that he's finding himself in and also i think sarah had mentioned something to me yesterday and christy maybe you can um, chime in because she maybe she was talking to you as well previously where she said that you were both appalled that he hadn't disciplined the crew. I love that he didn't because to me, he was trying to instill leadership where he was enacting mercy and trying to earn their trust. And I think men who are cruel and lead or rule with an iron fist are a dime a dozen men who act like captain kid are few and far between. And I thought that I thought that showed his character now he's not getting away with it because he's working with dishonorable men who then turned around those pirates who he didn't discipline turned around and lied about him. So and became pirates and, and they were pirates and they became pirates. Right. Yeah. So I found that they were real pirates. They, right. Yeah. Right. But right. I, yeah. I loved his character. I, you know, he just, it was a little reminiscent. I have to reminisce of some, something every episode. I feel like. <laughs> it's, it's your like your signature it's a little Jean-Luc Picard it is <laughs> he is yes okay I, can not, that. I know he's not exploring and I know what not but I just that sense of integrity and not like he was looking at those papers and he was unwilling to rob someone if it wasn't the correct papers which yes. again I know it's privateering and pirating and there's a fine line between whether you're stealing legally or stealing illegally. But that was his job. That was his job. He had been hired to be a privateer. And not really hired, kind of forced and coerced. That's what I think. Right. He was conscripted. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I think conscripted into it. I don't think he had another option. Right. I I make no argument about him being a pirate because I don't think he was one. I, I think if he had been a pirate, look at all the ships that got away. If he had been a pirate, he wouldn't have left anybody left. He wouldn't have left them to tell. You know, he he would have really been successful at eliminating his enemies. So I definitely don't think he was a pirate. I just (laughs) question his ability (laughs) to actually do the job that he was conscripted to do. And I do feel sympathy for him. So as I was reading, I was feeling sympathy. But I was thinking, my goodness, he's got these mutineers. They are in this high-risk position to start with. It's very, very questionable what they're doing. And 
It's very difficult to do. He keeps losing his men every time the press comes by. And he then allows the cancer to stay on his ship and continually infect the rest of the ship. I do think he had integrity, but I think he was a little bit too much of a gentleman and not enough of an actual seaman to understand. Because this is the same guy who got his ship stolen from him in the first chapter. Right, but I think that the part that you're arguing about whether he should have been uh, more of a disciplinarian when that happened, maybe we forget what kind of a situation he was in because we don't, we can't comprehend being that far from home, totally out of communication and without any options. Because yeah. he had already had, what, half of his crew taken away. Right. And when the press gangs came by, they took all the good guys. All the good guys. So all he's got half his crew they're all the bad ones so he's probably also thinking i still have to get home yeah true if if i discipline these men it, you don't you know you keel haul somebody and they're probably not going to live or whatever you do to them they're probably going to be pretty much useless and everybody else gets mad and takes over the ship he's done he's yeah. he's two years out from being able to get home he needs some help and i think that's would be just an impossible situation to decide what to do because there's no right answer. Right. And he was a merchant by trade. Yeah. Totally in control of his business, probably who he hired and who he wouldn't hire. Yes. And he was in control of none of that. What he fed mm -hmm. them, you know, none of that. He, it was all provided. Yes. Not well. Not well. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> No, that's a good point. Absolutely. That's a good point. I definitely just felt so much sympathy for him because his situation was completely untenable. The, the question I have, well, actually, Diane, we didn't ask you yet. What did you think of the book? Well, I mean, other than the fact that you already reviewed it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that's probably, um, while I was reading it, was that always that sense of frustration. Like, really? Again? They stole his ship? They stole his men? He has papers and it didn't do any good. It was it was very frustrating. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and especially when you do know how it's going to end. So, you, you know, you feel bad the whole time. Um, what could he have done differently? Whether he was a pirate or not, there just seems like no way out. Yes. And just to clarify for our listeners, just because we're saying it's frustrating um, or that we were irritated or that we had sympathy, none of these are things to say don't read the book. It's quite the opposite. No. Yeah. <laughs> we are completely passionate that you should read this book. <laughs> we're just going through all the things that we were thinking or, you know, that we were feeling as we were reading it. It's a good exercise, I think, for our kids to put themselves in the shoes. Like Tanya, you said mm -hmm. he had such excellent character and diane you were saying you know what he was doing that he was so far from home his choices were none he really mm -hmm. did not have choices it's a good thing for our kids to walk in those mm -hmm. shoes for the pages of that book what would they do how would they have handled this differently that's mm -hmm. that's when, the thing he want. did have when he did have choices like to rob the ship that it wasn't legal for him to rob he didn't right and yet he was creative, I have to say, when he was traveling with the three uh, British ships and he knew that he was about to be pressed again and he took off in the middle of the night. I thought that was that was creative and unexpected because up to that point, I thought he was kind of a rollover. <laughs> he was learning. It yeah. takes some time. <laughs> well, maybe that's that's a one small proof that he wasn't a pirate is that he does not know how to think like one. Yes. And that's not he a problem. He wasn't constantly, right. He wasn't constantly a jump ahead of everyone else because he had planned it out and done this hundreds of times or whatever. He's, he's just kind of, stuff is just happening to him. Yeah. So that begs the question, why this man? Why did they want this man to do this job? What, does anybody have any sense of that? Well, if you were doing something nefarious, and which the the backers were right, including the king, wouldn't you, wouldn't you want to hire someone that you thought would do the right thing for you? True, true. Good point. You, do you want some crook that's gonna take your ship, take the crew you gave him or didn't, and mm -hmm. run off with it? Right, 
You wanted That's what somebody a pirate would do. Yeah, you wanted somebody trustworthy. That makes sense. Totally. Because he was trustworthy, he didn't have the connections right. to work around the connections. So um yeah. where the the whole group of guys has plotted against him, he's just going, Well, okay, I guess I don't have any choice. He doesn't have his own group of people who come to his rescue when he ends up in jail. He, well, he, then doesn't even... he had connections, right? He had a connection in New York. The guy who eventually, who originally made the the arrangement, who then betrayed him, right? Right. That Lord Belmont, right. yeah. To say, but he didn't have a network like his network of bad guys that could have come and broke him out of prison or something. We didn't even have an adequate network for stocking and staffing the ship. In London, he was being robbed blind. Then he thinks, well, if I just get to New York, the situation will be better. But it wasn't. He couldn't get adequate food. He couldn't get adequate men. It was just one problem after another from the get-go. So, Tanya, tell us more about why you're so passionate about this book. I mean, he has excellent character. What else do you love? I did love the seafaring. I loved learning more about that time period. I think I didn't 100% understand how people would be pressed into service, just kidnapped right off the street, grown men. Um, I yeah. found that quite horrifying, frankly. That's something that we we take for granted, our rights and our freedoms today. And that would cause a lawsuit and there would be people would be arrested for that type of behavior. And here you had people in power, leadership and government who would press people into service. And then once you're on a ship, as Christy was saying, you're two years out doing those things. So the time period, I think you get steeped into the time period. I think you get steeped into what it was like on a ship, on a pirate ship. And then you get this sense of this person who's trying to change the winds of fate, trying mm. to overcome. It, it is truly a series of unfortunate events and you know that it's going to culminate and mm -hmm. not coming to fruition. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, sometimes things don't work out. He's right. just trying to do a job and go home. Yeah. He just wanted to be home oh. with his wife and with his daughter yeah. and people betrayed him. And I, and yet I didn't find it to be depressing necessarily. I felt a great sense of, I don't know what, what I felt courage in the face of odds mm -hmm. he mm -hmm. kept going yeah he still kept going even though you know he had a hard time and all these things kept happening to him there are a lot of people that would have just given up and gone off and been a pirate or although yeah. he probably wouldn't have done too well at it but <laughs> he, well, he, he still wanted keep... his good name he wanted to be yes. able to go home to his family and still have his good name yeah. Yes. And I think, Jill, yeah. you and I had to been talking at one point. We just were rooting for him the whole time, even though we knew the yeah. outcome. It's one of those books where you're reading it and you're just praying the whole way that somehow the ending will be different than you know it's going to be. You just right. so desperately. Right. History is wrong. History is wrong. And, and, and if you could go back in time and then all of a sudden you want to be a time traveler. <laughs> if I could go back in time and switch this thing, this it just feels so epically wrong that it happened. Yes. Yeah. And to lose his life over it. Well, that's, I mean, that was for me, the really hard part was I kept waiting for him to do something dastardly or something horrible in order to justify the loss of his life. There, there wasn't a thing he actually did wrong. He just, he cried, like the, how many ships went home to England with bad reports of him? They were completely untrue, but they preceded him by how many months? So they got the jump on the story, and you know how that is. person who talks first usually gets to set the narrative. Wild. And maybe maybe that was one of the saddest things, was like, even with Joan of Arc, as bad a treatment as she got, later they rehabilitated her. They said, yes. oh gosh, we were wrong, she was right. And that never happened for him, so he didn't even die for a cause like oh no. later they decided they were sorry no they just covered everything up and kept it you know let it for hundreds of years um be said that he was a pirate so right. he he just died and he's a bad guy and and he you know deserved everything he got and that's how it got left and that's what most people still believe until i think it was 1903 there was a scholar going through the british museum 
and this is a spoiler, but he found the French passes that proved that he he did what he said he did, that wow. it was legal for him to take over that ship because it had the French papers. Right. So, and they lied about it. Mm-hmm. So how is, how were those papers saved? That's that's my question. They didn't he turn them in to Lord Belmont, and they were there, but mysteriously they disappeared during his trial, and right. somehow they ended up in the British Museum. Yeah, that's that's I the part I find fascinating. Just. Why did they, like, stow them in a corner somewhere? Why did they hide them? Unless maybe they thought if things went bad for the consortium, then they could pull it out and say, look, here they are. Oh, you know, but kid would have already been dead. Dead. Yeah, I guess that was my question, Christy. Why didn't they just burn them? Burn them. There had to have been some advantage that they thought they might need. Right. You know, I think back then even... The people were very reluctant to destroy official paperwork. Mm. It wasn't recorded on the internet like we have now, but but they, I think that they didn't just go around burning official documents, and they might be willing to hide them or you know put them in a box somewhere and lock it and throw away the key, but they didn't just get rid of them. And so, mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know how those things work, but it was official stuff. I also yeah. think, and you see this sometimes in modern stories and and whatnot, probably a John Grisham novel, you'd probably see this, or in the Aaron Brockovich movie, where the big uppity uppers say, go destroy all this evidence, but they, they tell it to the, you know, the janitor. And then the janitor right. looks at it and goes, huh, I think I'll hold on to that. Not- uh huh. <laughs> so I just wonder which which person that was reshelving stuff somewhere in some archive thought, yeah, I destroyed that, and then just hid it somewhere. <laughs> you know, I don't know. I always wonder though, because sometimes the people in charge think that the people that are underneath them are idiots or are going to obey explicitly, blindly, blindly and then you yeah. never know which person's going to just think, huh? This. Hide that away. I'm just going to keep that. Mm-hmm. And maybe yeah, they do it for cool. noble reasons. They True. think it's wrong to destroy history. True. At least you don't know. Like, who was that person? Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. I guess we'll never know, but we do know that French passes are there. Yeah. Still. <laughs> so it it's fascinating how passionate Whipple is that he was not a pirate. And it it is interesting, Diane, what you say, the fact that it's just not commonly known why Whipple's book wasn't more commonly read, why it's not more commonly known. But I guess we could say that about a lot of things, right? Right. Although a lot of times it seems like these days when, oh, we found new information. And so then yeah. everybody wants to jump on that bandwagon and and nobody did. Like right. the bandwagon went by at night or something. I don't know. <laughs> well, maybe it's, maybe if it had been printed in the landmark order earlier, right? Mm-hmm. I think the Barbary Pirates is one mm, that's yeah. earlier. It would have been encountered by more people. Yes. You know. Because this was the last one, is that right? Yes. It was printed the fewest number of times, so there aren't as many copies mm-hmm. out there. And the landmark started in the 1950s. So the earlier ones were in print for 20 years, and people were exposed to them for 20 years. And the last ones, they were probably only in print for a year or two before they stopped making more of them. So that's why. And even those that were printed may not have been read, because as we said in our landmark overview episode that we did, we talked about the fact that this was a book of the month club for kids. But if if they had gotten that book of the month subscription when they were eight, they'd be 28 when Captain Kid came out. And so who knows how many of those parents kept collecting and putting on their shelves for grandchildren, but they just never really were read. But so, Jill, your copy will now be in the hands of many, many more, and maybe the next generation will have a different opinion of him. I sure hope so. It would be nice if the book could sway a few young people out there. Even if it just opens their imaginations to the Mm -hmm. idea that it might not be true. 
or just present the other side so that they can make their own decision. Yes. It swayed this old person. (laughs) (laughs) And me too. (laughs) So I want to make sure that we're respecting everybody's time. Do you want to talk more about Captain Kidd? So I don't think I really have anything else unless I need to ask some pointed question of Tanya so that she can defend the (laughs) I know to the death. (laughs) It could hurt. I'm guard, Tanya. I think he was a snake. What is the saying in the Princess Bride? To the pain. To the pain. (laughs) I think what we've done is a good job here of helping families get excited about the book and want to actually take it off the shelf. I would just say that I think if you were doing Captain's Courageous, this would be a wonderful book to put with it. I think these stories of behaving nobly at sea would fit well together. Also, as Christy mentioned, The Barbary Pirates is another landmark book that would go well with this one. And I love that the map makes it very clear uh, from a geographical standpoint how this is really working. It was fascinating to me to just, I just tabbed that page and just kept turning back to understand where these places were because some of them you know about, you hear about them all the time, but you might not know where they are. Some of them I had never heard of. And so it was interesting to, to follow along with the ship. But to that end, why don't we start talking about how this book is living in its new, beautiful life with Jill <laughs> at Purple House Press. Jill, the map that's in the book was there a map in the original landmark book, or did you add that? That is the original map, but I added one on the back cover. Lovely. By the way, can we just say how much I love the title page of the ship spills onto two pages? Yeah, that is nice. <laughs> what I love about the two-page spread on the title page is it it's, gives a sense of scale and a sense of like sweeping action, I felt like it was just the kind of image that would draw you into the story. And even the ship is pointed in the right direction, like sail into this story with me. Mm-hmm. So artistically, I was a big fan of how you handled that. Are you the only one who sees that besides me? Because I think when a ship is sailing towards the edges of the pages outwards, it's like leaving the story. But when it's sailing into the, to the inside of the book, it's sailing into the story. I completely agree. (laughs) I, I, it's, it's going into the frame, not out of the frame. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, uh, so fitting on a title page, because that does feel like an invitation into the story. So Jill, you have to start us off here by retelling your story for those who have not heard it yet. How much did you pay for your Captain Kid? Well, first of all, I want to say Captain Kid came to my attention because on Facebook, I kept seeing people talking about it and how expensive it was, like $450, $500. And I just thought that was crazy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, like I, you, you asked earlier, I'm sorry, I would never pay that much for a book unless it was some rare collector's copy of a book that's hundreds of years old. Our little local library has library sales uh, once a year or so. And I went in, this was probably 18 months, two years ago. I went in on the third or fourth day of a sale, and they had dollar a bag sale going on. And I managed to put, I think, 14 books into my bag for a dollar. (laughs) (laughs) And I was looking along. I probably had 10 or 12 books, and then I spotted it on the table. The Mysterious Voyage of Captain Kidd. And I just thought, no way. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> my little library. <laughs> and it's just, it's been sitting there for days and nobody found it yet. And so I picked it up and I didn't put it down <laughs> until I got it home. I, I didn't trust myself to, you know, it's like somebody else might pick it up and take it away. But yeah. uh, so anyway, I ended up buying the bag of books and I think I had 14 in them. I might have said 12 earlier, but I think it was 14 because I told myself I paid seven cents for my my copy of Captain Kid. And I took a picture of it there in the library and I sent it to Tanya. And I said, can you believe this? (laughs) We were talking about it for a minute. And then I said, I just think this is my sign that I'm supposed to reprint this book. And that's why it was given to me for seven cents. I agree. 
<laughs> and Tanya, you were saying, yes, yeah. now, do it. <laughs> yeah, I don't believe in coincidences like that. I think, I think things happen for a reason. And there was another similar type story that we can share in a future episode. But Jill found that one and I said, no, like that book came to you. It, <laughs> it, it's calling to you The people need it clearly. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And so then Jill, you were able to read it. Yeah. No, I, I think things happen for a reason too. I think there's this bigger picture that we don't always see. And in this case, I felt like the universe was telling me that you need to do this book. Well, and really quickly, Jill, I think there's been times where we've talked about you know, once you decide on a book, sometimes the rights have come in in less than an hour. Some have taken years to get the rights. But when it clicks into place so quickly, it's another just confirmation that you're on a good path. And didn't this one come into place pretty quickly, too? Before I found the book, I had sent an email to Chris Whipple, who is ABC Whipple's son. Uh, I sent it to him through his website. And I had not gotten an answer. And then after I found the book, I was all excited about it. And I told Anthony and he said he had the uh, agent's email address and he sent it to me. And so within about two days, I had her attention and we were working on a deal. And it didn't really take long after that. Wow. And Anthony did not want to do the landmark book. So he was very happy that you did, right? Yeah, it was very nice of him to share the information because he did not have to. I was thinking about this a lot the other day, as a matter of fact, that one of the things I'm really proud of what we are doing with the podcast is helping people understand things I didn't understand. But in talking to you and in talking to Anthony, we have such a much better idea of why books are reprinted the way they are. And it has completely changed my Mm -hmm. ability to look at a reprint and appreciate it for its own value. So I'm very glad that we use the podcast as an opportunity to educate other people who are listening to those people out there who think reprint should look like the old book. And I remember what Anthony said on that small publisher roundtable we did, where he said, if you want the old book, go find the old book. The reprint is fundamentally going to be different. The point is to get the story back to life. And That's what I do tell it, people, too. That's what I tell people. I said, if you if you really want a book that looks like the old one, our new editions have made the old copies much more reasonably priced, and you can go buy that one now. Exactly. Exactly. Yay. So, Christy, did you end up with a hardbound or a paperback for your library? No, this one's definitely a hardbound. Yeah, me too. I decided I wanted yeah. the hardbound. I really splurged on it. <laughs> it's worth it. <laughs> right. And I knew that I I am not a set completist kind of person mm-hmm. because most of what I have, I just ran across. Mm. I didn't start setting out to like collect complete sets of things. So I, I know I will probably never have a complete set of landmarks unless Jill publishes all the ones I don't have. (laughs) She's well on her way. So I'm I'm right there. Christy, did you have combat nurses or medical corps heroes? I don't think so. Here, let me turn around. I don't think I do. Well. But even if I did, I would still buy (laughs) purple house ones because if one is good, two is better. Especially when they're affordable, then you can have multiple copies for your patrons. Well, and I I like to try to add extra things, too. So let's talk about that, because you do add extra things. Embellishments, you also update facts. I heard that photography is going to be better, because the printing of some of that black and white photography back in, in those days is pretty dismal. Well, thank you. Yeah, I'm trying to. I looked through it and about half of the photographs I was able to find and use and the other half are new ones to the book. Let's talk about Captain Kidd and the updates and embellishments you did with Captain Kidd. Jill talked about when she found the book, she messaged me, she found it. We knew it was complete serendipity and she started chasing it. And As she would work on things, she would message me and share. She is very artistic. She gets extremely excited about the ideas that she has. And 
I love to cheerlead. So um, I always love hearing what she's doing. So, and we've talked about a lot of books. So I can't always remember every detail she shared. So I searched all of our Facebook <laughs> Messenger. <laughs> mm-hmm. I did in preparation for this. It did take a while. <laughs> And there were a few things I remembered, and there were a few things that I had forgotten that are just brilliant that you did. So one, so some of the details in the book, let's just, I'll just ask you some questions and why don't you share. You had sent me a message about the blank lines in between sections inside of the chapters, and you had filled those with anchors. You had taken little... Yeah. I just wanted to give it more of a nautical feel. So I added those in. And then on each chapter page, I put the wheel of a ship, you know, the steering wheel. Uh, I put that on the chapter page. I just, I just thought it gave the book a nice feel. And then when I was starting to put the chapter numbers on the chapter page, it was like in the steering wheel, I thought, well, why don't I just have them go around like the numbers on a clock? I just thought that would add a little interesting detail for people. And it'd be, sort of be like the clock of his life is, is winding down. And I thought maybe some somebody would notice because uh, Leonard Kessler put that idea into my head ages ago. And he did a joke book and there, was, there were ants in it. And he had little ants on the page in different places doing different things. And he said, some child will notice those and, you know, they'll get a kick out of it. So I try to add in those little interesting details when I can. I love it. It's just those little embellishing touches are, do make it such a wonderful, luxurious reading experience. It it doesn't feel like just this cheap book that you're reading. It feels like an experience, like when you're going to the theater and, you know, the curtains feel a certain way and the chairs feel a certain way. Those those little touches do that, I think, for the book. I guess, yeah, they try, they set the stage, they, like they give it more of a nautical feel. And that's what I was right. going for. About a few. Um, <laughs> well, who doesn't like maps? <laughs> but for this yeah. one, you added a map. This is what you said to me: the, a map of Espanola from 1650 is on the back illustration. Mm-hmm. Where did you get that, and how did you decide on that particular one? On the back cover, I have some ships at the bottom for one of the illustrations, and there's some text. And it just looked like something was missing. So I've got to add a map onto this to give the ship's purpose on the cover. And I thought, well, okay, I need to find a map that has something to do with Captain Kidd. So I I came on the idea of I will, well, we never really talked about this yet, but the Kata Merchant was found in 2007 by a snorkeler, and it's in... I think seven or eight feet of water, 70 feet off the shores of Catalina Island, which is off of the Dominican Republic, which used to be Española, Hispaniola. So I thought, okay, I've got to find a map of that because that is meaningful. That is where he left the Cato Merchant. And so I went back. There's there's this really wonderful website out there, a good resource for people who like maps. There's a map collector named David Rumsey, and he collected them for years. And he has scanned them all in high resolution, cleaned them all up, and put them online for free. And then wow. he donated all of his actual maps to Stanford, I think their library, so that they're all archived right now. And so I went there and I searched on Catalina Island and I wanted one from the time period of Captain Kidd. And the one that I found was from 1650. And I thought, well, that's good because he could have actually seen that in his lifetime. So I got that and I used that as the back cover. And in the, I don't want to say where it is because I want kids to be able to go out there and find it sort of like an Easter egg. So (laughs) Catalina Island is very tiny, but it's on the back cover somewhere. And that is where the Cata Merchant is today. Wow. Very cool. So that ties into 
the fact that you did add a publisher's note to this one. And it's about finding the Cato Merchant. Um, the, the University of Indiana actually went out there and worked with the Dominican Republic, and they verified that this is indeed Captain Kids because they inventoried all of the large objects that were down there, and they all matched the testimony and lo- locations that Kid testified in his trial of, like, the scrap metal he had, where his cannons were, and that sort of thing, and they all match up exactly with his testimony. And so the University of Indiana, they help Dominican Republic, and they curate a living museum, and they have markers down there showing where all the things are. And you can you can go there if you're a snorkeler or a diver. You can go see what's left of the Cato Merchant. But, like, how cool is that? I mean, I was so interested in what happened to Captain Kidd's treasure that I Googled it, and that's what I found. And I just, you know, 300 years after he left it there, it was found. It's like, how cool is that? (laughs) That is very cool. So the ship is still buried, right? Sea, it's buried at sea. They haven't pulled it up? Well, there's only the ruins of it, you know, and I'm sure right. that there are barnacles and coral and and things all over it, but they did find it. It's it buried in eight feet of water, seven feet of water, something like that. Mm-hmm. And you can swim to it from Catalina Island. Oh, cool. I remember being mesmerized when they first time they were able to bring video down to the sunken Titanic. And so that that's why I asked that question mm-hmm. is, you know, when they make the decision, do we just leave these ships at the bottom of the sea or do we pull them up for their historical value? So, but again, if they thought he was a pirate, they probably don't see any need to pull it up. Well, ages ago in another lifetime, I used to be a diver and I used to live in Fort Lauderdale. And when I was living there, the city of Fort Lauderdale sunk a large ship because they wanted to create a coral reef. And so that was one of the dives I went on. It was over 100 feet below the water. And when it's that far down, you can't stay very long just because of the atmosphere. But it was so cool to go down there and see that. Wow. So that's a question for another time. Like, So how does that create a coral reef? Well, they sink the ship and all of the sea life is attracted to it and the coral starts growing on it and then the fish come and and it just starts an artificial reef and it's good for the sea to have that out there oh yeah no for sure for sure Mm -hmm. wow that's so cool well i i thought that the way that you put the map on the back was very tasteful it's printed like a watermark um it's not you not busy it's not really like in your face it's just elegant Mm -hmm. So well, I it's really in the ba- it's it. in the background, yeah. And so somebody really has to be paying attention to to look to see what it's a picture of. Yes, it's intriguing, and it's beautiful, and it's still you can totally see it, well, but it's not <laughs> screaming at you, <laughs> so. right? <laughs> I love discussions like this because I must be a creative or artistic luddite because I get into the book. And I read the book and sometimes I lose sight of all of these. And now you're talking about them and it's like, I found Catalina. I mean, I noticed the book was beautiful. You know, my brain says the book is beautiful, but let's get to the story. Story. Well, that's the the story that you just wanted to read it and didn't pay attention to anything else. So I take that as a compliment. (laughs) that's why I love these discussions and I love being able to hear you talk about the little touches that you add to a book because now I can go back and look for all those things and enjoy it again because as soon as I open it I'm probably going to read it again (laughs) that's really beautiful thank you (laughs) oh I love that I think the last thing Jill that I saw in our messages and I don't recall if this was exactly where in the book because it's been a couple months since I read the book but we were discussing the conversion rates in 1970. So the book was published in 1970, yeah. and I think there were estimations of the value of the treasure that he right. had. Mm-hmm. And you you were wanting to update those rates to be current to the year you were publishing the book. I think you were looking at 2021 or 2020. 
at the Bank of England. So did you make those changes? Yeah, I did. I used the the Bank of England has an inflation calculator online and it's it's very cool, very interesting. They researched all this back to the year 1209. Can you believe that? <laughs> I mean, you can type in wow. a, a pound in 1209, what is it worth today? And you'll get an answer. So I put in, wow. I think the one thing that I remember is that his treasure was buried at 10,000 pounds in about 1700. And in the 1970s, I believe Whipple said that was worth somewhere near a half a million dollars. And I was thinking, well, that's not very impressive, you know, I mean, like a half a million dollars is a lot of money today, but it's not uh, the way that they were portraying it, that it was like a huge amount of money. So I thought, I want to know what it's really worth in today's numbers. So I put it in and it's worth about $2 million today. And I thought, well, okay. That is impressive. Now um, we're talking. I, yeah. I agree. Yes, that's a lot of money. So I decided to change it. Everywhere that he says, and today that the, this amount is worth X dollars, I, I put in the updated version with a little footnote. I love that. That's so much more useful. I think kids will appreciate it more because, I mean, $2 million is, you know, much more impressive nowadays than half a million, so... Why well, not when use... we read, yeah, and when we read any of these, the old books, and they're talking about how much something costs, when it's a piece of literature for its own novel value, you probably want to leave it intact. But when you're actually trying to educate, it's really important that they understand the scope of it. And they can't do that if the numbers don't make any sense to them. If there's well, no I wanted it to be accurate because he was saying, and this is what it's worth in today's numbers and that well yeah yeah, it has changed I really want to know what it is worth now yeah I love that well I really love all of the the details and I love what Christy said um she's like oh I didn't even see all that I fell into the story which is beautiful but I also love the artistry of a book that's so well made that there's layers to it and I think oftentimes you'll find children will read and reread a story. And so they're going to find more in the story, but they might end up spending more time with the illustrations or with the maps or various pieces. And now even going online, Jill, you did the publisher's notes. You gave them resources for a couple of places to go to learn more. And I think that just creates a greater impact. And it just makes for a really, really beautiful addition. And I love that so much. Well, thanks. I I felt like since this was a landmark that people were always looking for, I had to do it honor. I, I just had to live up to it and be true to the story. And I just, I did the best I could and I'm happy with the results. And it's really nice to hear your feedback too. I think you surpassed yourself <laughs> on this one. Thank it's you, beautiful. Christy. I love you. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> So, Christy, you, as one of our resident librarians, have a beautiful list of other nautical books that you thought people might care about. Do you want to talk about them, or should we just include them in the show notes? What do you want to say? Well, there are some, Mm -hmm. and some may not be real well-known. An author is well-known, Captain Marriott, who wrote Children of the New Forest, also wrote some nautical books books. Now, most of these are probably not for young children. They might make great read-alouds if the parent understands the maturity level of the the child, but seafaring adventures were not for the faint of heart, and they were some tough, tough things that went on. We saw, I think he did a really good job in Captain Kidd of, you know, toning that down, but uh, Captain Marriott Uh, wrote Mr. Midshipman Easy, an interesting book. Mm -hmm. Midshipman Quinn is the the four-book series that Shoal Stiles wrote, and it was printed at one time by Bethlehem Books in a single volume. You can still find other volumes of it, but um, they did at one time publish that in a uh, single volume. It was adventure on the high seas and all that kind of stuff. Mr. Midshipman Easy, now... I was reading a little bit about this Captain Marriott 
at he wrote these at the time that he was living and this it follows this guy from his childhood and he had this father who had some ideas about the rights of man oh and mr easy goes on to the ship with these ideas, ideas. of the rights of man mm. and comes to find out that the navy doesn't work that way no and it's really kind of fun to i mean he just gets into trouble and <laughs> i mean I, I really have to read them again because they they were pretty good. Captain Gray by Avi. That is a sort of American version of Kidnap. Oh, fun. And it takes place in, in on a ship. Our family were old movie buffs. And so Captain Blood, the Seahawk, the Black Swan were great swashbuckling movies mm -hmm. with famous actors, Errol Flynn and mm -hmm. um, Tyrone Power. And um, the the Seahawk and Captain Blood were based on books by Sabatini. Oh, so they they were actually probably loosely based. I own the books, but I haven't read them. I'd read Captain Blood before I saw the movie, but I loved Errol Flynn when I was a kid. So I read the book. I thought, oh, that was really a good book. I bet the movie's great. It's not. It's not. No, no, they pretty much took all the guts out of it. And it's just a, it's excuse, an excuse to watch Errol Flynn right. is about yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> well, I imagine that most of his movies were an excuse to watch Errol Flynn. Which is Robin fine. Hood. That's fine. Yeah. Yeah. For what they are. Yes. And then let's see. The Crimson Pirate, though. Have you ever seen that? Mm -mm. With Burt Lancaster. I never realized that he was a gymnast. And oh, yeah. a lot of the swinging on the ship and all of this was done by him and another guy. And it's a kind of a funny take on a pirate movie, but the really silliest one is the princess and the pirate with Bob Hope and Virginia Mayo. And Oh my golly. That is, it's just great. But then there was a movie called Captain Kidd and it had Randolph Scott in it. I have no idea. I asked my guys, Nobody came up with it. So now I think I need to find out. Yeah, I would say. What, they, what the movie industry back in the way back thought about Captain Kidd. Wouldn't we, that be fun? That would be. I wanted to bring up one other one that I just read because I was looking in my library for books by Stephen Meter just because Jill has the Down the Big River one and I had never heard of him. And the one that I came up with was uh, The Black Buccaneer. Yes. So it's another good pirate one for kids. It's, it is it is intense. And it's another one where he manages to tell the story. There, there's plenty of d death and, you know, horrible, bad, bad characters without being graphic and scary. So, But the, the young teenage main character has to be brave and patient and, and, and maintain his integrity while everyone around him is trying to get him to become a pirate. And so it was, it's really a good story. I think that was his first book. Now I'm going to be embarrassed and look in my catalog and find out I have it and I never read it. <laughs> oh, I do. I guess I need to go find that one. <laughs> well, any other books? I'm sure there are tons. That was the quick list. Well, and if you think of others... We will have them in the show notes. So listeners are just going to have to go to the show notes to get all these titles and maybe extras that you'll think about. But either way, this is a great list. So thank you. I really want to thank you, ladies, for doing this. I want to end on a high note with Captain Kidd's character because I thought that this was a really important scene. So the, when the mutineers are threatening to mutiny the first time, in the Purple House Press version, it is page 67. Would his men decide instead to lock him up, seize Adventure Galley, and use her to capture the other vessel? That would mean giving up all pretense to being privateers and all hope of returning to their homes except as hunted men. Would they decide to go that far? One by one, the men began to drift back out of the circle. The group remaining and arguing with each other grew smaller and smaller. Kid saw that he was winning. Within a few minutes, the last of the mutineers gave up in disgust. I thought that that was 
marvelous that his power of persuasion was convicting enough that one by one he let the group take care of itself until it completely dissipated. And I loved that. Well, ladies, this was a marvelous book club. So grateful to have you all here today and really looking forward to doing more of these. We have already recorded, at the time of recording this, we've already recorded Medical Corps Heroes and we're going to record Combat Nurses next week. And there are lots more landmark books coming after that. So thank you for being here. Friends, please do make sure you check out the show notes. You can find them on our website. You can also find them linked in your podcast app. The show notes are going to be a real treasure trove not to steal a pirating term, but they are going to be a real treasure trove of additional resources and links to all the things. And please join us in the BiblioGuides online community, Mighty Networks community sponsored by BiblioGuides. It's completely free. You can join us over there in the Plumfield Reads group and tell us, what do you think? Privateer or pirate? Were you convinced? So Jill, Tanya, Christy, Thank you so very much for joining us today. Jill, thank you for publishing this book, making it accessible, and doing such an exquisite job with it. It's a real treasure. It was my pleasure, and thanks for gathering us all here today to talk about it. Oh, it's really hard getting people together to talk about books. It's just painful, Diane, right? I don't know. Yeah, I I don't know why we do it. (laughs) 